0: Welcome to Bible study this morning. A few quick news and notes items before we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to try and get through all of chapter 4 today and we'll see we might get to just a little bit of chapter 5 as well. Uh, first and foremost, there are handouts over on the bleachers, so if you wanted, um, someone would like a handout or something to write on, uh, we do have those handouts over on the bleachers. Also, there are sign-in sheets that are going around, and there are two, so there's one on the right side one on the left side, so you don't need to pass it across the, uh, the center lane here. Uh, And then finally, if you have not yet uh, seen it, we are in a couple weeks in celebration of Reformation Day having an amazing brats and pie fry. Um, If you're wondering what that is, it's basically we're going to have brats and eat pie as well. And I have lots of fun activities, including things for kids. So if you are interested in a a number of different volunteer opportunities, uh, you can either talk to me or go on our website. It's right on the uh, sign-up link on our sign-up genius. It's the first item. Um, so now that we've covered all of that, uh, let us dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So beginning at verse 1, Paul says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now I'm going to pause right there for a second. This idea of the mysteries of God, what, what is, you know, what, what is Paul talking about? Um, are there a set of mysteries? Are there a specific number of mysteries. The easiest way to think about it is the mysteries of God and how Paul refers to it here is the entire um, doctrine of the gospel. That Christ has come not just for the Jew but for the Greek as well has come to bring the redemption of God's people, all who trust in his name in faith. And there's several places in 1 Corinthians where Paul dives into these mysteries of God. So I'm going to have you go in your Bibles and turn back or scroll back if you're on your phone, just a few pages uh, The first Corinthians chapter two, uh, starting at verse one. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, Now, your first reaction may be, I thought we were talking about mysteries, and I don't hear a single thing about the mysteries of God. But that word testimony in the Greek is mysterion, mystery. And so, um, this is one of those examples where the original languages actually help us out because we can see that though it is translated here, testimony, it's the same idea that Paul is talking about. That this is the, mystery of, uh, the mysteries of God that he came proclaiming, not with lofty speech or wisdom. And there's kind of an interesting dynamic, and we're going to see this a little bit in 1 Corinthians, in that uh, wisdom is not usually a good thing in 1 Corinthians. Uh, It's because it's referring to the wisdom of the world. And of course, uh, the wisdom of the world says that Christ is foolishness. The cross is folly, as Paul would say. So that's the first spot where Paul talks about the mysteries of God. The next spot is just a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 2, verse seven, that we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. again it's that you don't see the word mystery do you secret is that same word mysterium but we impart a mysterious a hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory and so then we have where Paul talks about the mysteries right here in 1st Corinthians 4 but we're gonna skip that for just a moment go all the way to 1st Corinthians 15 one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible 1 Corinthians 15 is one of our Easter readings. It's a beautiful section it's where Paul says, you know, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, well then we should be pitied of all people because our faith, our hope is in vain. But towards the end, uh, towards the end of 1 Corinthians 15, looking at verse 51, I tell you brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at at the last trumpet. So you have this idea throughout the book of 1 Corinthians of the mysteries of God are, one, revealed in the gospel. It is the entire uh, gospel doctrine. But two, the mystery of God is, that which is hidden, there's still an element to it that is mysterious and that Christ has not returned yet. And so the, the, the culmination, the, the final fulfillment of the mysteries of God, we are, like the first Corinthian church, first the church in Corinth, um, we are still awaiting that full revelation of that which God has uh, revealed in Christ. And so, when you hear this phrase, mysteries of God, you know, it's not an Agatha Christie book. (laughs) um, But rather, it's this idea that what none of us could have ever imagined, God has done. What none of us could ever know without the gospel proclamation has been proclaimed to us. And so, Paul is reminding them that, yes, this wasn't plain and evident from all time to you in Corinth, But I have revealed what God has revealed. I have shown you what God has shown the world in His Son, Jesus Christ. Um, Moreover, going to verse 2, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. It's interesting that that Paul uses the word steward. If you think of a steward, what do you think of? A caretaker, yes. That he is a caretaker of this gospel doctrine, this, this mystery that has been revealed in Christ. But one of the things that is, I think we got to make sure we, we don't lose is how does a steward operate oftentimes? In the background, okay. Maybe I'll put it this way. How much oversight does a steward have if he's doing a good job? Complete oversight, that's exactly right. And so you have this idea uh, from Paul that I have been given this responsibility. Um, In fact, all the apostles have been given this responsibility. And what is required of a steward is that they be found faithful. Now, how is this applicable to us today? Well, think about how many times people will sacrifice fidelity, faithfulness, for something they perhaps like, especially when it comes to church. And it's a great reminder, the start of First Corinthians 4 is an excellent reminder that it is not about um, the personality of the pastor, for example. It is not about how good an organ can sound, and it does sound really good. It is not about how many of your friends necessarily go to a particular church. That the uh, whole criteria by which we must lay as the foundation for the bedrock of ministry is faithfulness and that's you know kind of what Paul is getting at here because that first corinthian church they as we're going to see they're a little bit arrogant they're puffed up and they had started going away from god in some cases very significantly and you're going to see this over the next couple of weeks as you go into first corinthians chapter 5 and they kind of were like oh well you know let's just do our thing and it's a great reminder that, no, it's not about us doing our thing. It's about staying faithful to that mystery revealed, the gospel proclamation of Jesus Christ. Um, and so you have this idea that Paul begins this chapter with with this stewardship, a servant of Christ, and then he launches into, but with me it is a very small thing, that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now this is going to be very important as we go forward into 1 Corinthians because um, it's going to be very important as we go forward into First Corinthians because Paul is going to offer what to these people who are living lawlessly, openly in sin? Friendly pat on the back? No. No. He's going to have a fairly harsh rebuke. And so he starts with himself, and you'll see Paul do this several times, but he starts uh, with himself saying, I am not guilty of anything. In fact, even if someone would bring something against me, though they couldn't, it would not be for any human to judge me. It is for the Lord to judge me because I have been faithful. And so he's preparing himself, and he's preparing the Corinthian church a little bit for the reaction to his rebuke. And in fact, the reaction wasn't so great, so much so that he had to write a second letter to them. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart then each one will receive his commendation from God. Uh, Here's a a great example of something that can be taken out of context. When you read just that verse there, just uh, verse 5, what might you be tempted to think? Or even this whole section, 2 through 5. You just take it out of context. Yeah, focused on works. Um, therefore, do not pronounce judgment. Right? Does that mean we never judge? No, in fact, just look at chapter 5, the next chapter that we're going to look at probably uh, next week. Paul judges and judges harshly. He says, stop doing that. You who are living in open sexual immorality, stop it. And if you're associating with a brother who is in open sexual immorality and you're not saying something, stop it! This is not Paul saying, and this is where again the context is key and why a class like this is so great is because when you look at it in the context of the letter, you see where Paul um, is going. When you try and just cherry pick it or snip it out and just look at it by itself, it can mean something completely different outside of the context of the letter. So verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. What do you think it means to not go beyond what is written? What what is Paul referring to here? The Scripture. Yeah, the whole Testament of Scripture and then why is this important? What is a struggle for us today even? We want to explain things we want to maybe add things we want to try and uh, Solve every question and every answer and what's one way we're reminded not to do that? To go beyond what is written? Yeah, do not add or take away. That's exactly right um, And this has been a struggle since the inception of the church This was a struggle for Israel, even in their day. This is is nothing new. But here Paul offers to this Corinthian church a pretty strong reminder. You are not to go beyond that which was written. Um, That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? Then, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And now we launch into what I think is maybe one of the best uses of sarcasm in the entire Bible. <laughs> when you read through this, you're going to be like, wait a minute, I thought the Corinthian church, it, you know, they're not doing it the right way. Paul, again, if you just took just these verses, it, you might think Paul's complimenting the Corinthian church. Um, but listen to how he uh, describes them. Already you have what you want. Already you have become rich. Without, without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. <laughs> now, uh, if you go all the way to the book of Revelation, and if you turn all the way to Revelation, Revelation chapter 3, you're going to see this isn't the only time that uh, this sort of I don't want to say sarcasm, but pointing out um, to those who are puffed up, uh, basically a humble pie, giving them some humble pie. So you go to Revelation chapter 3 and go to the church in Laodicea that starts at verse 14. Uh, And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. (laughs) Paul is doing the same thing here to this Corinthian church. He is about to... Show them just how poor, wretched, pitiable their behavior has been. How they have eschewed, gone away um, from that gospel testimony. And so, you know, it's one of those things where you, we are reminded Paul was certainly human and Paul certainly had a, a bit of a sense of humor uh, because this church that thinks they're all puffed up, that thinks they're doing so great, that's fine and dandy and doesn't need anything, doesn't certainly need rebuke and correction. Paul says, You have already what you want. You've got it all. You're rich. Without us, you've become kings. What, of course, is uh, kind of the tragic reality of a statement like that? Who is not their king? Jesus. Yeah. You have become kings, or at least you think you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us, apostles, as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and men. Uh, you see here what Paul is, is bringing forth, um, and quite passionately, is that that same idea of basically the cross being foolishness, following God, may look silly to the world. Following God may mean, quite frankly, um, that the world reviles you. You become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. For we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. Now remember, what did I say at the beginning regarding wisdom in Corinthians? First Corinthians? Wisdom is not a positive thing. So, what is he saying here? We are fools in Christ, and you seem wise in Christ. Yes, they've let the world's wisdom creep in. The blanket proclamation of Christ and Him crucified looks foolish. And so, what Paul's saying is I'll be a fool in Christ then. You want to be wise in Christ? You want to bring in the world's wisdom? You want to try and add things beyond what is written? <laughs> Fine, but I'll be a fool in Christ. And so you have this, again, um, kind of sarcasm, and really kind of cutting sarcasm when you think about it, against this church that had uh, become so puffed up and yet sadly had uh, gotten off track so significantly. Uh, we are weak How many of us woke up today and said, I hope I can be like the scum of the world? <laughs> but what, 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 again, what Paul's pointing out here is, be the scum of the world if it means remaining faithful in Christ. Be reviled by the world if it means remaining faithful in Christ. And uh, Jesus talks about this a little bit in a pretty famous section of Matthew. Can anyone think what, or Jesus speaks kind of this way? Maybe not quite in such harsh language. if the world hated me, it will will certainly hate you. Again, we've never put that on our sign. Come here and be hated by the world. (laughs) It's a promise. Jesus says the world will hate you. Um, Yes. Who said that? Very good, Nicole. Yes. The Sermon on the Mount. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. And you want to see what Paul's talking about really is uh, what it means when Jesus says the Sermon on the Mount, what it looks like, practically speaking, in one's life, when the world does hate you for Christ. So we begin uh, in verse 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Um, literally sermon, by Jesus. But what does it really mean when you think about it to be blessed by your meekness? Well, Paul would say, I'm weak. What does it mean that you be blessed while the world reviles you? Well, Paul would say that means that in Christ, well, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed, buffeted, and homeless. Um, what does it mean that blessed are the poor in spirit? Well, it means you can say I'll be a fool for Christ, <laughs> as Paul points out to this Corinthian church. And so you see here a little bit of a microcosm of you know, the, the attitudes, while they're beautiful, they're not easy when it's lived out. It's not easy when you look at what that means on a day-to-day experience. And I don't know, you know, what you guys are experiencing all in your, your lives right now. Uh, I feel very fortunate that we are are truly uh, blessed that we haven't necessarily faced a rebuke as strong as Paul has. Right? For the sake of the gospel, I don't know if any of us can ever say that <laughs> for the sake of the gospel, we are now poorly dressed, hungry, and di- held in disrepute. Um, and yet, oh, sorry, yes, Ruth? Okay, that's fair, fair enough. We are held in disrepute. Um, by some, I would say. It's still, by and large, uh, by and large, I, I think Paul would have loved if the worst thing that happened is the media criticized him. Right? He was dealing with a whole sort of different disrepute. Um, but you look at what it practically means to have those Beatitudes in our life and to have Jesus in our life and Paul here points out quite drastically uh, it's not always so easy and in fact uh, the world and we see this time and time again the world might even prosper in its wickedness and so we have this whole section 8 through 13 here where you see Paul expand his idea that, that the words of the cross seem foolish in this world you now that Corinthian church They thought they were just fine. They thought they had it all handled. Um, Why? Because they allowed the world to dictate a church. They allowed their own pride and desires, and and quite (laughs) devious ones, to stand against the word that Paul had proclaimed to them. And so you can see the seriousness of of the problem that they're facing. Um, And you can see the seriousness of what Paul's going to start hitting at in chapter 5. Yes, Bud. Yes, Bud. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, Yeah. You, you see a very prideful church. And so I, I love that, uh, you know, the idea that one is puffed up. And, and we've all seen this, perhaps, even if we wouldn't like to admit it, there have been times where we feel we've been puffed up in our own arrogance, maybe not about a church matter, but maybe at work or different things. Um, but yet, yeah, you have this church thinks they're, they know best, essentially. Seems to be well, and that's where you're going to have Paul pretty stringently say, again, don't go beyond what is written. You know, you, when you get into these sort of arguments, these sort of debates, what, what, what is the, the, the solution? Well, one, it's not the wisdom of the world. You know, this is not who knows philosophy better than the other. Uh, It is not who is more popular than the other. It is not who contributes more to the church than the other. But when you have these issues, and and, I mean, what the church in Corinth dealt with, churches have been dealing with, you know, maybe not to that degree, but there have been all sorts of scandal uh, in the church. And when that scandal happens, where do you go to figure out how do we get back on track? Go back to the word. And you're absolutely right that they seem to have this, this sense of pride as um and arrogance about them and how they are handling these divisions. And you know, it, it been I wonder what their voters' meetings were like. No. Um, but you, you have this, you know, this big point of emphasis that Paul is gonna hit at. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, I would say it's uh, the letters of the apostles. So we, we, one, uh, there are other letters that we just don't have. Um, Paul, you know, it's not like Paul only wrote these um, books that we have. And, you know, he wrote letters to all sorts of churches. But um, who brought the gospel to this church? Paul. And so at some point he likely, Um, had correspondence with them. And so when he says, don't go beyond what is written, he is talking about what the apostles have written. And again, okay, how many of those letters did they have? We're not, not sure. But there seems to be enough that Paul can say, look back to what is written, and they should be able to find the right course of action. Well, yeah. Well, especially, especially given the sins we're about to, to uh, go through, uh, they could just take the Ten Commandments, right? Yeah. Um, you're right. They, they would have the Torah. But likely also Paul is referring to other letters that he had written either specifically about this or even had brought with him when he had visited, uh, etc. And now is an intro, oh, sorry. All right, one more point, bud. Yes. Well, if they were instructed by the apostles, the apostles encouraged the use of you know the Old Testament scriptures. It never once is Paul, or do we have any evidence that any of the apostles ever said, "Don't look back at the scriptures." And that's where you know all of Scripture testifies to Jesus. Yeah, yes, and hidden before all ages. I mean, you go all the way back to Genesis three, right? And where's the the first you know statement where God says, "I'm going to send one to redeem my people"? It's to the serpent, and so how how well did they know the Old Testament scriptures? I think that's probably you could probably say probably not that well maybe some did, maybe some didn't, uh, but they would not have thrown that out, they would not have said don't you know, include that uh, and now verse 14 unless there's any other David, oh, <laughs> we're going to get to verse 14 yes yeah, they were deviating from what Paul had, the, basically the purity of the gospel as Paul had presented it to them. Yep. Well, and, you know, you think about it. Oh. You, you can imagine the sort of place, I think, Corinth was, or at least this church, especially when you look back, like you said, Bud, into chapter 3, with, you know, I follow Paul, and others says I follow Apollos. I mean, everyone was kind of going their own way. They wanted to have it basically be a little independent, you know, what I want to believe, I'll go with. And you see how they deviated from the gospel as Paul presented it, um, from the, the scriptures, from whatever they had. You know, all right, going into verse 14, and I think this is a really, really, really critical point that Paul is making in this verse. I write these things to make not, sorry, I almost met, messed it up, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now, you think about how we as Christians even handle some things. And now this is some pretty major issues that he's dealing with, right? Well, maybe, sometimes. Uh, (laughs) But you think about why is Paul writing this letter? Specifically here, what does he say he is not writing it for? Just point out all the things they do wrong. And this is where I think it is important for us to stop for a moment and think about our own lives. How do we handle pointing out the flaws and the faults in others? Whether it's at church, I mean, whether it's at home, whether it's with family, in-laws. <laughs> by what perspective do we go forth and point out those, those faults, those flaws? Not to bring them shame and What do you mean by that? Yes. Yes. Which is, of course, the issue here in Corinth. <laughs> so the point i made for those listening on the radio that uh, we often point out the faults in others because they simply don't go along with what we'd like them to go along with, which was exactly what was happening in Corinth. And that's where he talks about getting puffed up one against another. Well, I don't think he's apologizing as much as bringing forth the reminder that, you know, these things, these things are not written so that you guys can sit, you know, in church and say, look at the bad person, look at the, and then these are the good people, right? There were people going astray. And does Paul say he's going to write these things, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to make you feel better? No. No but to admonish you as my beloved children. And like I said, why I think this is so important is we struggle kind of straddling that line. Very quickly, when we don't want to judge or make someone embarrassed, we can accept something maybe that we shouldn't. But likewise, on on the other foot, we can judge and judge so harshly that it does bring shame to that person. You know? Yes! Yes! That's a, so the point was made, if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, at the, the end of it, in Matthew 7, there's the, the plank and the log uh, analogy, that Jesus uses, and what I always like to say with that is the speck still gets removed. We always forget that. We forget that almost every time we read it, we see it and say, rightfully, I need to remember my own sin and approach it as one who's a sinner, but it's so that then I can remove the speck from my brother's eye. Um, so often we just leave it as, we'll take the log out of our eye, but no, you do that for a purpose. You approach it exactly as you said, as I I'm a sinner too, but let's go back to what God has said, what God has written. Do you have a point, Corey? Do you have a question? Yes. Yeah. Correct. So the comment was made, you know, he, he writes in hope, hope of change. Which, of course, we all have. Uh, there is no lost cause before God. And I don't know, if, you know, and, and sometimes it can be difficult, especially when we have people in our lives where maybe it's been years, decades even, of division, of strife, um, disagreement, arguments, name-calling, you name it. Um, but there is no lost cause when it comes to not only the reconciliation amongst Christians, but also the, the hope of the gospel. And so, like you said, Ruth, you know, you start by saying, I write these things as a poor, miserable sinner. <laughs> Imagine if that's how we started every correction. Hey, you messed up, but I write this to you as a poor, miserable sinner. Um, that's kind of what Paul is encouraging, really. That's certainly what Jesus is saying in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, with the, the log is that do not forget just where you came from, what God has brought you out of, uh, how imperfect you are when addressing those uh, that are strain uh, And you notice, how does he refer to this Corinthian church? His beloved children. Who does Paul say Ch- Beloved children. And I uh, am fortunate that my daughter, who's 11 months old, has never done anything yet that is... Uh, Too jarring, I mean, she'll sometimes spit in my face or laugh about it or whatnot. But you think about how one offers a correction to a a child they love. What is the hope there with that parent? Every single time. And it's a little bit like what you said, Corey. It's done in hope. It's done prayerfully. It's done with the desire to bring that child back and that relationship back to where it needs to be. Verse fifteen. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now what do you think he means by that? That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Though you have many guides in Christ, what are the different guides they might be he might be referring to? Teachers, okay you think of the context of 1 Corinthians, who who might this be referring to? How about all those who are spouting off their opinions left, right, and center? There are a lot of competing voices in this church at that moment, saying all sorts of things, doing all sorts of things, all while saying, I'm following the gospel. So where does Paul take them back to? Well, himself, but who they first heard it from. And so when he says, um, you have one father, he's reminding them that I came to you and brought the gospel to you. You guys have a lot of voices out there. But don't forget, I know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm talking about to such a degree that through the gospel, through Christ, I'm like your father, teaching you, training you. you know what's what's one of a one key role for a dad? Well, discipline, sure. Maybe on a more positive side of it. Hmm? Teaching, training, guiding, right? Um, and you hear Paul saying the same thing: like, let me train you. Let me be who you remember. There's going to be a lot of voices saying all sorts of things, but allow me to be your witness, the witness to you of the gospel. Yeah. mm-hmm sure. yes and, and that's a good and that's kinda you're exactly right so the comment was made that it kinda talks about the hierarchy of a family and yeah, who's gonna be the top of that hierarchy the father and uh... you know even older siblings might train their younger siblings, but when Dad says, "No, we're doing it this way," it take, yeah, it take, should hopefully take precedent. Uh, I don't know. I see some dads laughing, so I don't know if it <laughs> always does. Um, but yeah, you have this really, I think, kind of beautiful analogy that he uses, and, and again, it's to focus them. This is one of the big issues in Corinth: is that they have all these voices, and some of them have been good. They're not all bad, I want to be clear here. Now there's some that are good, but Paul is saying, "All right, let's direct it back to where you first heard the Gospel um, and really kind of get back to the basics, which they needed. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. You know, uh, a couple of quick things here. What status does he give Timothy? Not just child, faithful and beloved. So you notice back to back here in, in short order, how does he refer to the church in Corinth? Beloved, and then how does he refer to Timothy? Beloved and... And faithful, uh, I don't think that would probably be lost on them. <laughs> that you know, the in- indication here is you're beloved, but he's beloved and faithful. And you know, it's interesting. Be imitators of me. What is Paul saying? Follow him in every step. And it, I heard it. Yeah, in how he preaches Christ and how he's living his life. It doesn't mean they have to do the exact same things Paul is doing, but like he said earlier, you guys act all rich. You act like you have everything you need. You act like you have all you want. Oh, you act like kings. Oh, if we should even just rule and reign with you. But no, we should be poor, reviled, poorly dressed, hungry, and thirsty. What he's saying is give up all the things of the world all the wisdom of the world for the cross, for following Jesus. And, of course, that is the heart of the foolishness, that it seems like folly to the world. But this isn't the only time that uh, Paul uh, directs a church to be imitators of him. So if you turn to Philippians, you go to Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 17, brothers join in imitating me, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, glory in their shame, with mindsets on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to, be, to subject all things to himself. Now, what sort of parallels do you notice right here with Philippians is, is this little paragraph to the Philippian church and what we've read so far in 1 Corinthians 14. Yeah, it's a very similar situation, right? Yeah, so they've got folks who were once walking in the way of the gospel who now walk away from the church. And he says, I tell you, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ for their God is their belly and they glory in their shame. All right, what's another parallel you notice? Imitate me, yeah. And there's a third parallel, and when I looked at this, I just thought it was interesting, because so often, at least in my mind, you think, you know, Corinth really had all the problems. They kind of get a bad rap, and rightfully so. We're going to go through, like I said, next week, uh, with chapter 5, the start of some of those sins, and they're not pretty, right? Um, But the same struggles that the church in Corinth had, maybe differing degrees, but the same struggle was occurring in other churches as well. And so often, I think, um, we sometimes forget, forget that, that these are churches in time and in space and places, and there was sin within them. Um, there has not been, you know, we're poor, miserable sinners. There is no perfect congregation. I hope that doesn't, you know, shock anybody. Yeah. Hmm. In the Lutheran Witness this month? Okay. So the comments made in the Lutheran Witness this month, there's a really good article on just the different teachings and different... Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the th- I want to get make sure I don't get off track, too far off track. The third thing that you see Paul do is regard himself as what? Lowly and regard those who exalt themselves as puffed up. Yeah, I I do love that phrase. We should use that more often. Stop being so puffed up. (laughs) Um, And so you have this direct similarity to what's going on in the Corinthian church. And quite frankly, it can happen anywhere. Not saying, you know, I I don't see that here, but we should be on guard because you have these folks who were walking in step with Paul. Paul walking in step with the proclamation of the gospel who now walk as enemies of the cross and Paul's going to like I said address those in just a few verses yeah yes yeah Yes. Uh, so, uh, Bud pointed out, for those uh, listening on the radio, an excellent point, which is if you go to verse 17, um, and when he says, I'm sending Timothy, my beloved and faithful child, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Okay. And you have this universality to this, this, this universal proclamation, and uh, it, that should be the goal. The proclamation should not be different in different churches. Um, and sadly, and you know, maybe I don't think the point of this is to necessarily compare, for example, ourselves to another church, but to be reminded that uh, what Paul is saying here to the church in Corinth, what he's saying to us, this is not a unique proclamation, but a universal proclamation. And uh, it also prevents, if you think about it from the church at Corinth side, It prevents anyone from kind of getting whiny, to be honest. Like, why is he picking on us? No, this is what I would share with anyone. Uh, That's kind of why I I went to that Philippians passage, because we have a perfect example of, look, here's how he did it at another church, in another place. Some are arrogant, as though I was not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. So, what is the reaction, at least to some of these words, that Paul has been sending to this church in Corinth? What is their reaction even to receiving Timothy? Yeah, I don't have to listen. This isn't Paul. You know, Timothy was younger. I sent, he sent his uh, apprentice. You know, he, he himself didn't come, and so Paul kind of swats that away right away, uh, and says, "If the Lord wills, I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power." Uh, now, what do you think that means? You think he's going to have an arm wrestling contest with the? Uh, no, he's talking about that we're going to let's put to the test here, what your claims are against the Word. And I find it so interesting that he says, the Kingdom of God does not exist in talk, but in power. And you think about how that power comes to us. Yeah, the Word, baptism. After reading this, I start thinking, next baptism we we should start, you know, this is a powerful day. How about the Lord's Supper? The power that consists in Christ's body and blood given and shed for you? It's not just words we say, but it is truly the power of God that we receive. His power is at work each and every day in our lives as baptized believers. Uh, And then verse 21 will be the last point we cover today. What do you wish? And I love this. Uh, let's give him an option, huh? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Uh, you know, it, it, that's that's my kind of question right there. <laughs> you, know, you want to do this the hard way? Or the easy way? <laughs> because it's going to get done. Uh, you know, and, and he really, you see, Paul was uh, masterful in how I call it tightening the screws. Now he tightens the screws on some of these people who... Be, were arrogant, who went away from the gospel. Uh, Paul writes very, very lovingly, but when he needs to, he's willing to kind of lay it out there and say, do you want me to come with the rod? Because I will. Or do you want me to come in a spirit of love and gentleness? Um, And so it's a, I guess we maybe should ask ourselves that question. Do we want God's uh, judgment by the rod? Or in that spirit of love and gentleness? And how do we then approach our own arrogance and our own ignorance sometimes of our sinful behaviors? And how does that then call us by the gospel to be humble about that? Not say, to not be puffed up, but to come and humbly say, yeah, I am a poor, miserable sinner. I need to get back to the basics. I need to follow Christ. Um, I will open it up for any last questions, comments, before, and I'll leave Pastor Thomas sexual immorality for next week. Mm-hmm. Yes. 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 That's a great point. So the common was made if you go back to um what was the, verse 6, yeah, did not go beyond what is written. And then the reminder Paul gives them later on that this is what I preach every church everywhere. It, it is a strong and powerful statement that the church, uh, where should the church look for its teaching? And I, you know, this should be our straightforward answer. The Word. Yeah. We are blessed because we have the Word, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mhm. Yes. Oh, I hundred percent agree. I think that's what Paul's saying here. Is like, I mean, we really can do this the hard way or the easy way. And, and you notice that word, admonish. It, like I said, he doesn't say, I, "I do not write these things to make you ashamed. I write them to give you a friendly pat on the back. You know, uh, try better next time." No, it's to admonish you. It's to say, cut it out, knock it off, stop. <laughs> um, and yeah, he, it, it is sometimes necessary to be firmer. I don't know if I'd say harsh, but it's just firmer about, you know, here's the reality of God's word. Here's the reality of the gospel. Here's who he's called us to believe, be and what he's called us to believe. Um, and we don't deviate from that. Yes. Yes. Well, and you notice right up. Yes, he is absolutely concerned about their spiritual life. Um, and you notice what the very next thing is. And I, I will save. So the sexual immorality discussion for Pastor Thomas next week, but you know what's the next thing he says after the section, the start of verse five? Basically, he goes to the probably what is the worst thing that he has heard reported about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys think you're doing this right? The way you're acting, the pagans would be ashamed, and yet here you are thinking this is all fine and dandy. Like, you want me to bring the rod, I mean, I'm, we can start naming names and pointing stuff out, and then where do you think you'll be after that? Yeah. Correct. Yeah, the, the alternative of just saying nothing and saying, you know, and even even saying, well, I hope you do it this way. No, this is not an, an optional thing in Paul's mind, you know. Um, yes, Nicole. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. He loves them too much to allow them to continue. It's why, you know, a, a child puts their hand near a hot stove. You, you slap it away. You don't say, hey, well, let's not do that anymore. You know, hey, I hope you don't do that again. No, you, te- you have to <laughs> teach them very, very strongly because you love them. Uh, Fire? Not a good idea to put your hand in, you know? Um, All right, any other comments before we wrap up for the day? All right, let us close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we come before you uh, grateful for the the truth and the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you allow us to stay humble, that you would uh, prevent us from becoming uh, arrogant and puffed up, and that in all things we give glory to your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.